Gusto. I think there's a, a cabal going on here. I think you guys time it so that when we come on, <laughs> Barry Farber and his lice start working in the next room. Well, I bring it up there, Peg. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to go into their studio. You know, keep saying, hey, you don't mind if we... Uh... <laughs> Each man is a... No, I forgot what he is. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what it is. Each man is a prisoner of his own psyche. Hey, listen, uh, tonight I think we ought to, we ought to uh, salute briefly before we get started here tonight the real, I mean the genuine uh, theater of our time, which I, I firmly believe is the television commercial. I think this is the genuine theater of our time. Hey, you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see a Walter Kerr of the television commercial world, a daily television critic who, uh, you know, <laughs> has a column. He says, uh, uh, the, the work of uh, the short, bald actor in the uh, new Alka-Seltzer spot is deserving of a particular... Uh, a pre- <laughs> you know? But uh, one of the great TV commercials of our time, I believe this completely, is this... Oh, I love it when it comes out. Have you seen the one where all these guys are sitting in the slam? There's about 5,000 of them, see? And and it's a prison uh, a prison mess hall. And you see all these guys with their tin cups. And it's beautifully acted. Have you seen that one? Beautifully acted where you see this guy, this tough-looking thug, see? He's sitting there, and he's got this tin cup, and he's got a plate of what looks like... Uh, uh, corned beef hash or something. He takes a bite of it, and you see this face flicker with distaste. And uh, his friend across the aisle from uh, old Greasy Thumb Goosek is sitting there, and he takes a taste of this hash and another look on his face. Then they start banging the cups one by one. Bromo seltzer, bromo seltzer. Or is it Alka Seltzer? <laughs> How's that for killing it? Bromo seltzer. And they start banging these things, you know. And uh, I watch this thing. You know, you get caught up in it. And you can see how a tremendous demonstration can get started just by one guy flicking an eyelash and somebody picking it up. And it's like a giant chain reaction. Do you have a feeling that you're part of an enormous human nuclear reactive pile? Then any minute now, it's all going to explode. 
I mean, no, I, 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 have, a, I have a strong sense of, of, uh, of feeling that they're very, very strongly based on that, that, that I think most of us walk through our lives just walking along, see? We just walk along through our lives whistling and uh, digging and scratching and uh, figuring that our lives are somehow not connected uh, with the lives of the people we see around us. They're living the official lives. Have you ever gotten on buses and felt that the people that are on the bus really belong there and uh, you kind of are just there briefly? Uh, the sense of going to a cocktail party and there are real cocktail party goers and you're just sort of faking it? <laughs> that, uh, that, yeah, oh, yeah this, is, this is a problem with life. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, I, 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 for example, I got a letter from a guy here today. He says, Shepard, he says, what is this? I mean, it's an important problem here. Shepard says, people in the mail and the newspapers everywhere, they're complaining about, quote, getting obscene and pornographic literature in the mail. How come I never get any of that stuff? <laughs> and he's angry. <laughs> now, do you, uh, it's, uh, I, or, or are these things created? I, mean, I, know, I know a guy who for over eight years is trying to be a hippie. And he goes down and sits on doorsteps on 8th Street in the village. He's got his hair growing down to his, his clavicle and sits down there. And uh, in moments of rare clarity will admit that he isn't a hippie at all. It's the other ones walking by that are hippies. He's just a guy from Fordham Road who one day will be blessed. One day they'll reach out. Oh, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, that a friend of mine was uh, an editor of TV Guide one time. Now, uh, everybody is worried about being alone in our day. They really are. But in a subtle way now. I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about even electronically. And this guy uh, was one of the editors of TV Guide, and he said that every week when they would put out in TV Guide, they have a little block, a little box, where it shows the ratings of the television shows. You know, like uh, Ed Sullivan is number 428, and so on down the line. It has numbers, like uh, uh, Lassie, 29.73. People watched it. <laughs> I don't know how the hell they figured out, but anyway... Uh, and they'll have these all down the line, see? So one day they were having a big meeting, and uh, all the editor types are sitting around, and one of them says, you know what I think? I think what we ought to do is do away with that. That's ridiculous. After all, the only people who are interested in the ratings, uh, these numbers here, are the guys that are in the business. What does a guy care who's watching a show? He's watching a show, you know? So they did away with it. And the first week, they did not have that box in there. They got more mail than any other single thing they had ever done since uh, telling the real story of why Julius, Julius La Rosa was fired. <laughs> I mean, or some big, you know, big television. This is all TV history, you know. Uh, if you're not aware of the classical period of television, uh, you would not know about Julius La Rosa's great firing. That would be almost like, uh, that was sort of roughly catamount uh, to the... Uh, uh, to the uh, loss of face by the uh, French, uh, the French royal family during the time of the Revolution. You see, these are. I, I think that one day, yes, I think one. It was his head. Yes, of course, it was lopped off. I think one day, uh, we're going to have two parallel sets of history. There's going to be history, history, and then the slob history. 
And, uh, oh, yes, many guys from here on in now are going to measure their life before or after the Mets won the pennant. That, that'll be almost like uh, the A.D., the B.C., the A.D., <laughs> B.P.A.P., before pennant, after pennant. And uh, it'll be a new era, you see. This is, uh, people tend to measure eras by, by events. In other words, uh, people will tell you that the whole era began when uh, uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed. Oh, I don't know. Not so sure of that. They'll say a new era began when uh, the atom bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And uh, every, remember when the guys walked on the moon and they were always saying, this is going to be a new era now. We have entered a new part of history, a whole new ball game. Did anything change with you, friend? How does it feel to be part of a new ball game? Pretty good. I mean, you feel a lot, a hell of a lot different than you did last spring before they walked on the moon, of course, yes, I'm sure. It's just like uh, some guy walking around in Genoa. See, he said, well, <laughs> he's walking around in Genoa. The year is 1492, <laughs> and uh, he's knee-deep in garbage, which, by the way, was a problem in Genoa in 1492, as it is in 1969 as it undoubtedly will be in 1979. So he's, uh, I mean, things don't change much in Genoa. So he's hes walking around, he's knee-deep in crud and apple cores and old potato peelings and stuff, and, and he's wearing his buskin, and uh, he's, he's walking around. And suddenly his friend, Pietro, turns to him, and he says, uh, he says to him, he says, Luigi, and the Pietro, is a, he's much more of a hip type, see, Pietro says, Luigi, do you feel any different today? And with that, uh, <laughs> Luigi says, What? What? I was feeling different. Why? What? It's only a Tuesday. He says, No, no. It's a new era. It's a new era. Yes, we are. It's the now a new a new world. Columbus has landed in, the, in America. Pregnant pause. And Luigi, of course, being a typical walking around slob, refuses to see the profundity of what has occurred. He says, ah, so what? The, the taxes are still a bad. <laughs> now, there you've got the two, the two people. You've got, the, you've got the, uh, uh, the earthbound and the cosmic. And I think the ultimate battle in man's affairs will be between those two people. Now, you hear, oh, yes, between the earthbound and the cosmic, not the hip and the square, the earthbound and the cosmic. Now, uh, this is an important difference because, for example, when they walked on the moon, I heard 50 commentators who came on the air the next day and said, here we are, uh, we're spending billions, man has just walked on the moon, and yet, uh, have you taken a look at the, uh, at the potholes in Fordham Road? Why can't we do something about the potholes? We can, man can walk on the, on the moon, but at the same time, he can't find a decent place to park in Manhattan. Now, that's the earthbound. No matter what happens, he keeps thinking about getting a parking place or getting the, getting the potholes on Fordham Road fixed up. Now, on the other hand, the cosmic never think of that. The cosmic is the entirely different scale. <laughs> so he is always saying, but man must, must strive ever onward. He must reach for the stars. He must go beyond the galaxies. He must reach out and out and out. He must... And all the while, he's knee-deep in apple cores and crud. So between the two, there's a constant, there's a constant battle, a constant uproar. 
And nobody ever really wins. Nobody does. Because in the end, we do both. Grudgingly. Uh, grudgingly, the cosmic will be forced to fill up the potholes on Fordham Road. And grudgingly, the earthbound will be forced to ante up so that the cosmic can go to the outer rings of Saturn. And so, ultimately, we want... Of course, the, the, the problem between theory and and uh, and uh, reality has always bugged people, even in their own lives. Theory is one thing, reality is another. Oh, yes. I wonder how many people uh, travel in theory. They, they, uh, they read about Sweden, for example. They think of Sweden. They see a big, uh, full, double-page spread that says, The Fantastic Chicks of Sweden. And you see these pictures of all these girls outlined against the sunset, and it says the Swedish girls are blah, 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 Sweden, exciting, blah, blah. And they get to Sweden, and they find out that it's just like any other place. There are subways going around. <laughs> there are girls that slap them in the mouth. There are girls that don't look at them. And, uh, you know, you, it, it's just like any other place. So you prefer the the uh, the abstract. Many people prefer abstract people. Okay, Lee? Many people prefer abstract people to countries. In other words, it's much better to read about uh, love than to be involved in it. And so uh, <laughs> the uh, the problems the problems I remember as a kid. And boy, I'll tell you, I had I had. Uh, when you when you uh, when you get down to actually doing something, that as opposed to not doing something, to reading about it, you see the great system between the spoken, the written abstraction, and the reality. I remember uh, on a Saturday night, many eons ago, I received the great baptism of fire in the reality world. The genuine, please, if you will, please. Uh, that's it. That's it. We are, we are about now tonight to salute all of you who feel that somewhere along the line your life got loused up. Somewhere along the line, you made a cosmic misstep. Have you ever looked deep into yourself and wondered, why the hell do I work here in a cleaning plant? <laughs> why me? Or how did I wind up here at the dairy? What? Why me? With all the things to do in the world, how come this? I mean, when Richard Burton went on to become Richard Burton, and I went on to become the third guy in line for the next job to open up at the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, how come? Why me? What happened to me? Very good. Now, that's excellent. Now, you reset that, Al. That's very, very good. Very good. Yeah, by the way, are you noticing how many uh, commercials today are, are uh, based on prison life? You notice that? There's several ones. Several? Oh, I think there's, a, there's something important about that. You know, the guys all sitting down there banging their tin cans and hollering, Roma Seltzer. Uh, there's one prison spot where there's a guy in a cell, and apparently his chief problem about being in that cell is that his cellmate has bad breath. You seen that one? <laughs> that says a lot about being in jail. If that's the only thing you got to worry about, <laughs> I mean, you know. But uh, I think these little dramas do say a great deal more than they, you know, they intend to say. But did you ever spend any time in jail, friends? 
Now, let's be honest. Look me right in the loudspeaker there. Yeah, have you ever have you ever had that deep feeling that all of us have? Now, you, you've had I know you've had it. Don't, don't tell me you hadn't had that feeling. That, that feeling when you see a cop standing there. You walk past him. And a little thing way down deep inside your gut says, I'm absolutely clean. I didn't do anything wrong. I am innocent. <laughs> do you have that feeling of being innocent? How many times do you have the feeling when, when you pick up a, a paper, see, and it says, Axe Murderer, Slays Seven in Hackensack. And you read it, you look down, it says, Saturday night, an axe murderer in... Oh, I got an alibi. I, I wasn't there. I wasn't in Hackensack Saturday night. They could catch me all they want. I, I, was, I can prove that I was in Darien Saturday night. And there's a, that vague feeling of, of not being the one that was guilty. Now, now, why do you feel this? Why, why do you? I mean, is it because you could conceivably be? Do you ever think of it that way? <laughs> In other words, there must be something deep down inside of you that a little bell goes off when you read about something like that. You know, it's just a man throws brick through First National Bank window. Say, oh boy, I'm glad they caught him. They can't blame that on me. You know? <laughs> but why Why? Uh, why do we feel this? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. I remember one time, I'm going to tell you a little story about about that, that moment of guilt, that terrible feeling of guilt. Have you ever Have you ever had uh, something happen to you that's right out of Kafka? How many of you have ever read Kafka? Well, Kafka deals with that sneaking sense, that constant sense of imminent doom that most of us have. And, by the way, the European recognizes, and the American seems to think it's due to, quote, the American way of life or the system. Americans are very interesting people that way. We don't recognize today a thing called human nature. People keep using the phrase American society or uh, Americans do this or Americans feel that way. Whereas, actually, you're talking about people. This is a human, uh, human society, really, is what we're talking about. But uh, the, the, the sense of imminent, almost uh, descending doom, the sense that something is slowly creeping up on you in the dark, is not due to alienation. Or it's, not <laughs> it's not due to anything other than the fact that we're alive. And something is always creeping up on everything that's alive. I mean, have you ever noticed a gerbil looking out of his cage? I mean, what does the gerbil think of the world out there? Does he think of you as trying to get in the cage? That's right. I doubt whether he thinks of the cage as holding him in. I think he thinks of it as keeping you out. And he looks out. He peers out. Have you ever wondered what a dachshund thinks? Walking down the street, looking around at all these feet and uh, all these, uh, all these, uh, <laughs> all these fire plugs and and all these tires going by him? Well, what does man think? Well, I'll tell you. One night, on a Saturday night, I don't know how quite to bring this this story uh, to the waiting populace. Even, by the way, Saturday night uh, is a bad night uh, for, uh, for problems. A cop can tell you what night of the week it is by just the way the phones are ringing. He does not have to even have a calendar, because Saturday night is the night when people throw things, they cut things, they 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 get bugged. 
Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the feeling of disappointment that it is Saturday night. But nevertheless, one night, I'm going out, say I'm 16, 17, something like that. And I had just gotten my first used car. Now, all of you remember that feeling. Uh, Al, do you remember the first car you ever had? What kind was it? A what? Chevy. Was it a was it a two-door, four-door? Two-door. Can you remember how it looked? What color was it? Black? Well, I'll tell you what my first car was. My first car was a V8. And it uh, must have had 28 owners uh, before I got it. But it looked groovy. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really great. I bought this car from an ad. And uh, me and Schwartz and a couple of other guys went down to look at it. And already Flick owned the car. And so we drove down to see this car. And it was exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for this kind of car. Why, I don't know. But the, it was a V8. It was a... a, a 105-horsepower V8, and it was a two-door, and it was exactly the kind I was looking for. Now, I don't know whether or not they knew I was looking for this, and they produced this turkey, or whether I found it. Of course, this is a problem that uh, <laughs> that is always a troubled man, whether or not you get what you ask for in the end, or whether or not what you ask for you create. You create your own monsters. So I'm, I'm creeping along through the, the, uh, this used car lot on Stony Island. See, trying to pretend I'm very cool, see. I'm very cool looking at these cars. I don't want to let this guy know that this is the one really digging. So I keep walking up and down the rows of cars, you know, all these Plymouths and Chevys. All the while I got my eye on this Ford, see. And Schwartz is over there looking at the Ford. He's pretending like he, he doesn't care either, you know. We're walking around digging these cars and always drifting back. To take a look at them, you know, drifting back, circling around this car. I will never forget missing an opportunity which still bothers me. One Saturday in this used car lot, and uh, this, uh, this, is a, this is a true story, and I, when I think of it, it makes me sick. Flick and myself and Schwartz were looking at used cars, and we were thinking of buying one all together. We were going to put our dough together and buy a car. And uh, here on the lot, was a Rolls-Royce limousine. I mean, the big kind. You know, the kind with the open front where the the, uh, the chauffeur sits in the front and there's a little, like a compartment in the back, some kind of a crazy thing, and he's got a little a little leatherette top that goes over the top where if it's raining, you know, because the chauffeur, in a really elegant car, the chauffeur is sort of like, uh, he has no human rights. I mean, uh, not the chauffeur. I mean, he is, he's, uh, he is under the uh, influence of the weather and all of it. You know, he, he gets rained on. You don't, you don't bring the fenders in when it's raining. The fenders get rained on. That's all there is to it. And the chauffeur in a genuine limousine is part of the machinery. He's not a human being. So he's sitting out there in the front. And the great-looking car it was a tremendous car. It was a dark, dark, beautiful uh, forest green. And it had sort of biscuit color, kind of biscuit-colored uh, mohair upholstery. I remember this beautiful car. And the front, of course, was all leather, black leather at the front with a driver drove. And we took a look at this thing. We walked around it. Beautiful car, tremendous radiators, Rolls-Royce Gothic radiators. The sun is gleaming on it. And there she stood, right in the middle of this 
this great proletarian herd of cruddy-looking fourth-hand Oldsmobiles. <laughs> and yeah, there it was. This is yeah. I mean, it's like it really is. It's like going down to uh, some crummy marina someplace, you know, on Long Island, and all these little uh, plastic boats are sitting there, and right in the middle of it all is the Santa Maria, and it's for sale. <laughs> and uh, here we're. Here was this beautiful car. Well, we, we were walking around this thing, looking at it. And uh, it had side mounts. This I remember about it. It had these wells, you know, fender wells with the tires sunk down in the wells. And uh, Flick climbed up in the front, sitting there and holding that great, big, beautiful steering wheel, a tremendous black steering wheel. It was like a bus steering wheel, you know, the kind that they have in the Fifth Avenue. Tremendous steering wheel. And Right behind the chauffeur's head was a speaking tube. You take it down, see, so I get in the back, me and Schwartz, and, and Flick says, where to? He hollers into the speaking tube, and it worked. It comes out in the back, you hear Flick hollering, where to? Had this glass partition. So uh, Schwartz hollers out, the Warren G. Harding School, please. And Because uh, <laughs> we were going to buy this car, see, to go to school with. I wish we had done it. Damn it, I wish it. But the Schwartz tells us, the Warren G. Harding School, please. And Flick says, uh, do you want to uh, go into uh, the side entrance, or do you want to go around to the end entrance, uh, sir? And Schwartz says, uh, please take me past the uh, Red Rooster. I want to pick up a cheeseburger on the way there, James. And uh, <laughs> Flick says, all right, yes, sir. And we're shipping away there. You know what the price of that car was? Fifty bucks. $50. Now, I can't explain it. There it was. It was a $50 Rolls Royce. Now, why was it a $50 Rolls Royce? Well, because everything is judged and everything has a price according to the demand for it. Now, that Rolls Royce, had it been in New York, would probably have been, I don't know, you know, how many thousands. But it was in East Chicago, Indiana where their concept of a really great car, a truly great car, is a Pontiac station wagon. And they all go down from that point. <laughs> and that's true. A lot of people really honestly believe that the greatest cars built in the world are American. This is an article of not faith. It's an article of fact with them. They really believe this. Oh, yeah. Oh, listen. One night, I'm with a guy... And uh, it wasn't me. I'm just with him, see. I'm in a 4.1 Ferrari America. Do you know what a Ferrari is, Al? A lot of people don't. You'd be surprised at the number who don't. And so we're driving along, and we're over here on the west side highway. And we're just booming along. And the thing has got a burble to it, you see. When you're, when you're in a car like a Ferrari, you're not in a car. You're in a creation. This is a, something else again. And it's... Oh, what a hand-built automobile, 12-cylinder car. And it's no bigger uh, to the untrained eye. If you just take a look at it, it looks like a little MG or something. See? And here's this thing burbling along. Well, we get up to the to the uh, turnpike or, or the uh, Triborough Bridge entrance. We drive up to this place. And some guy comes up behind. And my friend is fumbling around with his dollar bill and He's trying to get the change and all that. We're sitting in this Ferrari, and the guy behind us is in about a 53 Dodge. You know, the guy with the rust streaks on the bottom? 
<laughs> you know, the whole, the, the, with the with the three tone fins and the whole bit. You know, it's about five hundred our hands have owned this thing. See, and he sticks his head out of the window. He's getting a little bug. See, because he says, "Get that junk out of there, will you?" This coming from a guy in a 53 Dodge Coronet, which was a turkey the day it was born and has gone downhill from that point. Well, of course, this is this is all part of religion. Automobiles, all of this is a, is, a, is a religious thing. It's nothing to do with right or wrong. Oh, yes, many people feel that an Oldsmobile is a young mobile. You buy a, an Olds and you're younger somehow. Uh, you buy a Dodge, and that's uh, something else. You know the the, the Chargers. <laughs> you, you can you it's it's uh, you know it's, it's a kind of a mystique, and so we are looking at a totally alien mystique. Schwartz and Fleck and myself, and Bruner, walking around looking at this fantastic, this beautiful, majestic Rolls. Now I don't know what year the Rolls Royce was, because Rolls Royces don't have a year. It's like saying, what year was that Rembrandt? Who cares? This big, beautiful, dark green rolls. We're walking around this thing, and instantly, out of this shack, this used car joint, came friendly Fred, the hungry Armenian. And uh, he saw a way of unloading this heap. Well, to him, that was a heap. Now, why? Because not many people came in and bought these things. And there were several reasons. For one thing... This Rolls-Royce had the look of a car that would take maybe 8, 9, 10, 15 gallons of gas just to get it started. After that, you, you know, after that, she started to burn it. And, uh, of course, gas was a big deal. And it was foreign. You know, the, the foreign, we have a great streak of xenophobia that runs through us. It's not just Americans. Everybody does. It's, it, what is xenophobia? That's a great word, by the way. Xenophobia with an X. And uh, how many of you know what xenophobia is based on? <laughs> I mean, the word xenophobia. Do you know who Xenophon was? Uh, but the, nevertheless, the fear of something basically foreign. You could smell of leather. And it was enclosed, you know. It was, it was the kind of car that obviously some old lady must have owned. You know, that, that the very rich people, when they owned these Rolls Royces, didn't want the people to see them. They wanted to be enclosed by their car, so it had a little round window, like a peephole, on the side, and a little round window in the back. So me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruno were sitting in the back of this thing and howling through the speaking tube. And up comes hungry Fred, the Armenian. He said, well, how does it look, boys? And Flick says, great. How much is it? says, 50 bucks, you can drive it out. He says, sounds like a clock. Flick says, uh, turn it on. Because it had a dashboard that looked like the dashboard of a Mack truck. You know, a tremendous thing. So Big Fred takes the key out of his pocket. He says, watch this. He steps on the thing, turns it on, and it goes, that purring sound. You know that sound of a really great engine? That burbling sound. We walked around and looked at the car. Now, I'm going to tell you something. We had planned to spend $65 for a car. That's how much money I had saved over three summers of struggling, three summers of various jobs, and uh, 
all kinds of little things that I had worked. I now got 65 bucks. That's what I was going to spend on a car. This car I could have bought for 50 bucks and would have had $15 worth of whatever I want. I could have bought flowers for the vases in it, for example. And vases in the back. <laughs> How do you like that for elegance, man? And it had a, I remember it had a, uh, it had a luggage rack on the back of the, uh, the cabin, like, it was like the back of the trunk. And the luggage rack folded up. It was beautiful. And it had strips of, of polished wood in it. And it had these, these ma- magnificent chrome wire wheels. And I, I remember the, the uh, front of this thing. We, you could stand up on the, uh, on the, uh, bumper and, the, the the hood of this thing came right about up to your chest. And, oh, this is a big car, see. So I'm walking around looking at this thing, and I think, 65 bucks. And Flick walks over to me. He says, oh, man. He says, he wants 50 bucks for this heap. And I said, well, gee, you know, it's pretty big, Flick. He says, yeah, but look at the thing. It's Look how old it is. See, see we, that's another thing. A lot of people have an idea that a classical car is an old car. Many people have an idea that since, you know, it has this big, long hood that has has a knife-edge styling, that's old. That's not that's related. And, and if there's one thing that an American is afraid of, is anything old. It's old, it's bad news. <laughs> I mean, it's old, bad. People, if they're old, bad, get rid of them. Bad, bad, bad. I mean... Uh, that's why the word new is a magic word in all of our commercials. Practically every product you buy, they say, the new, the new, all new, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. You've been buying it for years. It's suddenly new. It's all new. The all new aspirin. The all new Addison. The all new this. Everything's new. The all new enzyme. The all new blah, blah. Everything is new every day. There is nothing old any place. It is impossible to buy anything that has any kind of... Uh, basis of tradition at all in it, because the old in itself is uh, not good. And so we're walking around, looking at this this great, beautiful, majestic Rolls Royce. Well, that was just kind of fun. We just sort of kicked around. We had n- never at any point did we seriously think of buying this thing. What we were really looking at was this Ford, which was about 18 cars down the road. And we're playing them. We're using the Rolls-Royce as a ploy, a gambit. And so big old Fred, uh, the hungry Armenian, says, looks pretty good, boys. This little, this little old car is not the only reason you're getting this, course. A lot of people don't appreciate what this car really is. It's looking at the Rolls. Not to mention us. <laughs> so we walk on down the line looking at these cars. Do I have to tell you, that afternoon, that Saturday afternoon, because all used cars, almost all of them, are bought on Saturdays. In fact, a lot of bad things happen on Saturdays. Many guys... I wonder how many guys made a decision to marry this chick on a Saturday. On a date. With the candle going. You know, in this little French restaurant. Or vice versa. Some some girl, you know, is out with this, this you know, this turkey... And uh, somehow he looks great on this Saturday night. He's wearing his new Sears Roebuck dark blue suit. And he's got that knit tie. <laughs> and he's got a good shave. And he's poured the aqua velvet down all over his head. And he smells real good, you know. And he's cleaned up the car. They're out on this big date. And here they are. And the candle is going. And they buy this bottle of, 
of, of wine, and, and she's had a couple of glasses, you know, of, of Gallo wine now, and, and the cheeseburgers are going down, and she's feeling warm and groovy, and he says, how about it, baby, let's get married tonight? And she says, okay. And five minutes later, the deed is done, and 25 years of total hell begin. <laughs> and uh, all because of Saturday night. Now, now uh, this is a very well-named night, you know. You know that Saturday night refers to Saturnalia. It's the night of the Saturnalia. It is uh, also uh, peripherally named after the planet Saturn, but uh, Saturn was really named after the whole concept of the Saturnalia itself. And what is a Saturnalia, friend? Well, it ain't exactly a birthday party, believe me. A Saturnalia is a Saturnalia is a is an orgy, <laughs> and so on a Saturday night a lot of things happen. And it was on a Saturday night that I first discovered the realities of the world. The hard, the tough world of commerce. See, up to that time, being a kid, 17, everything had a certain pristine beauty to it. If you wanted to get a new, you know, you get a, a Ford, you go out and you buy this Ford. Everything is great after that. If you get a date with this girl who's the uh, drum majorette, everything's groovy. <laughs> you know, everything's sort of, there, there was never any repercussion to anything. And so I am walking around now on this Saturday afternoon, looking at this car, making a decision in my hand as to 65 bucks, and I am really nervous. I'm about to do something. I've been arguing with my mother for years about getting a car. I have battled it out with the old man. And, you know, the old man, he's always saying, now look, I just want to tell you this. The old man had one line about it. He says, if you, if you, if you run over somebody... Or if you knock down some guy's house, don't come crying to me. You see, he said that because that's the kind of stuff he did. So, <laughs> and I was like, you know, oh no, he lived in the world of cars. He was, you know, he was a real fanatical car driver. So, yeah, he was for me getting a car. Yet, on the other hand, a, a, a father can't help being jealous of his kid. And he was. Because, like, it took him, uh, you know, he was in the... Before he got his first car, for crying out loud, you know, he had, he had to really make it. But here I am, 17, I'm already buying a car, see. So I'm walking around making that decision. It was dove gray, this car, Al. That 10th hand Ford was a beautiful dove gray. You see that already, huh? It was lovely. Had a had a big, shiny grill. And I got into the front seat of it, being very casual with friendly Fred, like a... You know, I never did kind of, I, I don't know, these uh, Ford VHs. Oh, it's burnt oil, you know. I don't know. How much you want for this clunker? He just smiled, his chromium teeth glistening in the Saturday sunlight because he knew he could see this, the faint flush around the eyes that this is the one I was interested in. I mean, this was an old campaigner. So I get in the front seat. He says, here's the key, just to... Gun it a little bit. See how she feels. And there ain't nothing more exciting than to have that phrase, gun it a little bit. So I turn on the keyboard. <laughs> had that, that, that rough, raw power sound. <laughs> I gun it a couple of times. And I'm playing it cool. See, I, 
after all, I've studied under my old man who is a, he bought used cars, you know, from, from all his life. So I know what to do. I get out of the car and say, ah, no, it doesn't sound. Let me take a look under the hood. That's what all used car buyers do. And that's one of the great uh, fallacies, that by looking under the hood, you can tell if something's wrong. Nobody has ever seen, friends, a cracked piston by looking under the hood. I guarantee you that. Nobody has ever seen a car with balsa wood piston rings by looking under the hood. You will not be able to detect that silly, putty transmission by looking under the hood. So I open up, but there it is, beautiful. Oh, look at that, baby. Oh, you can see the air cleaner, and he's got the motor running, and it was rocking, and how it rocks in the mounts. You could smell that hot oil, that smell of that exciting power come drifting out from under the hood. I see the battery glitzing. Everything was polished under the hood. Be careful. If you run into a used car where everything is polished under the hood, that means they're selling you a big, fat lemon, man. It's all beautiful. Everything's clean. So I drift on down the line, pretending I'm looking at a Plymouth, looking at a Chevy. Finally, casually, I say to Friendly, Hey, uh, Fred, uh, how about that Ford down there, that gray Ford? How much, how much, how much you ask him for that Ford? He looks at me with these two beady eyes. <laughs> Listen, you can't touch that one. I should have told you, my brother's mine, that one. I've been saving that for the brother. He's been looking for one for years. Beautiful years. You know, it's in mint condition. Uh, I, I, I don't think I want to sell it. Oh, my God. I hit that like a smallmouth bass hitting a plug. I mean, I, and little did I realize it, that, you know, this is one of the oldest ploys in the world. But after all, I'm 17. It's a new ploy to me. I said, oh, your brother. Oh. Then there was no other car in the lot. Drift down to the end of the line. I come back and says, oh, how about it, Fred? Uh, what about the Ford? I mean, come on. What about the Ford? He's got me going. He's, well, you know, that, uh, no less than 150 bucks. That'll be a yard and a half. 50 bucks. <laughs> so I'll give you 75. <laughs> 75, yeah, your bird. <laughs> oh, 75 dollars. <laughs> 75. Listen, uh, I, my, my brother wants like, he wants to give me $200, my brother, for this car. Get out of here. 25 minutes later, and an infinite amount of haggling later, less on the tick. I drove out in my first automobile. Flick and Schwartz in the back. Bruner sitting in the front with me. I am driving my first car. What a feeling. I mean, there's, there's no feeling like it. Is there? None. Your first automobile... License, I've got a license driver, and I have this bill of sale on my hand. It's my car, and it's got a radio in it. I turn the radio on, and I can hear this music coming out of the dashboard. You could smell the upholstery. Oh, groovy, shiny. That thing shined. It was so shiny. You know, in this used car lot, they had these yellow light bulbs. 
Remember how they always do that in the, in the used car light, the yellow light bulbs? And they have a special kind of stuff. I don't know what it is. They spray on the cars that reacts to yellow light bulbs. <laughs> These th I'm telling you, it's shown like the Kohenor diamond. It was unbelievable. Well, I take this car and I drive it down Stony Island. And there's cars all around me. And I'm driving along, you know, that very... Very careful. Now watch out there. There's a guy coming up on the side there. And I'm driving... Well, I went about four blocks, and I began to suspect something. At first, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to believe this. It constantly was pulling to the left. It's going a little bit to the left, see? And I could feel it going off. I said, I must have the little air in the front there, in the left front tire. I better stop and get some air. So I pulled into the shell station, see? And I go around with the, with the tire gauge. I'm checking all the time. Oh, yeah. It's about a pound and a half low. Here, I could see that. Of course, Psst. put a little more air in the left front tire. I drive out back into the street again. Now it's pulling three times harder to the left. Keeps going. Well, we go about maybe eight or nine blocks, and we come to a crosstown street. Friends, I don't know how many of you have had educations pounded into your head at a crosstown street. The crosstown street itself is at cross-purposes to your course in life, right? I came driving along. Here's a crosstown street that had streetcar tracks on it. Just going right across, see? So I'm driving along real good, and I come to the streetcar tracks. I hit the streetcar, and everything is wiggling. And all of a sudden, the whole front end is going... Oh, this baby is shimmying so bad, my shoulders are out of joint. That Schwartz is laughing to be... He's laughing like he's going to die in the back seat. You know, he's flipping because he he's the first to observe, of course, that Shepard has bought an L-E-M-O-N. It was only at that moment, right at that instant, I began to detect seeds floating around me. I could smell lemon juice. Shepard has bought, a, and I mean, of unimaginable, of a lemon that goes beyond all lemons. Not only did it shimmy, <laughs> three blocks after I went over these first railroad tracks, I began to notice something coming, de developing in the in the mirror. I keep looking up in the mirror. There, I, I, it looked like there was a blimp catching up with me. I kept getting this impression that there was a Zeppelin following me. It was then that I began to realize it was laying down this gigantic, enormous cloud of blue smoke. <laughs> it was laying down a smoke screen, I want to tell you, like the battleship New Jersey laying off some enemy coast. Tremendous. And it didn't do that for the first 20 minutes. I don't know what he put in this thing. <laughs> well, I said, it's smoking there pretty good. And Schwartz is looking out of the back window, and Flick now it starts to play it. See, Flick is laying sideways in the back going, <coughs> and, and sure enough, I see coming out of the back, I see smoke. It's drifting up through the floorboards. Oh, God, no. And by the way, this was a one-way sale. You didn't bring this turkey back. So I... <laughs> I must see, and I was about five miles from home. You, you remember this it was a good five-mile drive to where I was going. Already, there have been three major things happen to this baby. Well, we go over, <laughs> we get up on the turnpike, which would be the equivalent of the turnpike here, say, 
up to this time, I'm driving on little local streets. I get up on a turnpike. Everybody's going 60 miles an hour, right? So I get up on a turnpike, and all of a sudden, everything's going... It's shimming in the back. It's shimming in the front. I realize this is a 34-mile-an-hour car. Everything's going... Smoke coming out of the bottom. And then the transmission began to go... Howard Johnson. We pile out. Schwartz walks around it. Flick walks around it. He says, well, it looks pretty good. I said, yeah. So I think I called my dad. I couldn't even get the thing home. Have you ever bought a car so bad you couldn't get it home? I couldn't. The thing was going to blow apart. <laughs> I called the old man. <laughs> and, and he's home, say, and it's Saturday. You know, the old man's always home on Saturday. And I said, hey, Dad. Yes? I said, Dad, uh, could you come down to uh, the second interchange on the turnpike and pick me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruner up? Uh, I, got, I got the Ford. Do you remember the Ford I was going to buy, Dad? Pregnant. Yes. Well, uh, it's down here at the Howard Johnson. So why don't you drive it home? Well, uh, it, it shimmies. He started to laugh. The old man is laughing. Because, you see, he and Friendly Fred were old enemies. He <laughs> Friendly Fred had fought the battle for 25 years. He bought 19 cars from him, see? And they were, they were the kind of enemies, you see, who knew each other intimately. He says, did, did you buy that from Fred? And I said, yes. Oh, God. That same, he, he sold that car 19 times already. That, you, that, you bought that great, don't tell me you bought that gray V8? I said, yes. Oh, oh my God. He said, oh. And so 10 minutes later, the Oldsmobile arrives. The old man says, let me drive it. You drive the Olds. Now, he had enormous shoulders, which he had developed from driving cars with bad shimmies. See, so he knew how to handle a shimmying car. <laughs> so he gets into this car and, blah, this big blue cloud of smoke. And he goes down that turnpike. You could see this thing. It was vibrating like some kind of a reducing machine. You see the old man driving along there and his arm hanging out. You know, he's, he's, he's used to these clunkers. He finally gets to our interchange where you drive off. He goes down and into the driveway. <laughs> well, that night, that Saturday night, I had a date with this girl. I had, it was all based on this car. And I remember the feeling of mingled excitement because I did have a car and the sick sense inside of my gut that I have bought the turkey of all time. And driving in front of her house, I drove up and I reached out. You know, it's got a horn. I'm ready to toot the horn. And I reach out and it blew a field. I tried to blow the horn and the fuse blow <laughs> in front of her house. She comes out and says, oh, how pretty. Is this your new car? Yeah, come on, get in. And she slides in, and I put her in the first, 
and we went driving off towards the Orpheum Theater. That Saturday night, that that classic, traditional Saturday night where man learns the basic truth about the world around him. And as I, by the way, I stopped at four gas stations in a mile and a half drive to put oil in it. This thing didn't burn oil. It just poured it out the pipe. Oil used a thick stream right out the back. It would lay down oil, a stream of oil on the road. Gasoline? Friend, I could hear my car drinking gas out in the backyard when the key was off. It would just lay out there and suck it up. I'd hear it like... Two hours after I drove out the first night, I got my first flat. I tried to put the spare on, and I discovered that the spare was made out of what appeared to be Kleenex, painted black. That spare... <laughs> that spare was not only a joke, it was like trying to drive down the street with a nickel balloon on your wheel. And it was then that I realized that every tire on this car was not only a recap and a retread, but the tubes were made entirely out of patches. There was none of the original rubber left in the tube. You'd pull it out, nothing. But you know, of all the cars I've ever owned, of all those cars, the one car I remember most of all is that Ford. I drove that Ford for one solid year. I rebuilt it entirely. I bought, I went to every junkyard, I built that car, I knew every part in it because I put it in. In fact, the only thing original, it had the same two doors on it when I finally got rid of it that I bought. I replaced the transmission. I put in new pistons. I put in new rings. I put in new valve lifters. I put in new, all the way down the line. And when I finally got rid of that car, well, it wasn't burning more than... A gallon and a half of oil for every ten miles, something like that, which was an improvement, a big improvement. In fact, my car, when I originally bought it, was it was more of a diesel than anything else. But I remember that car like I've remembered no other car I've ever owned. Maybe because it was evil. And by the way, the car hated me. Never liked me. We'd drive down the road. I could hear that transmission. It always made a sort of humming, singing sound, even after I changed the gears. Damn it, damn it. would make a strange muttering, damn it sound. It was always muttering and swearing. It was a car that hated being a car. Probably more than that, it hated being a Ford in the world of Rolls Royces. It just muttered and groaned its way through life and laid down that purple haze. <laughs> 